This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the uh, podcast for this week. We'll be joined by Bobby V for some baseball, Mark Schlereth for some uh, post-draft analysis and some football talk, all that coming up. But as we said each week, if you send me some uh, questions or comments at Mike Francesa Podcast, at Mike Francesa Podcast at gmail.com, uh, we will answer them. So let's get to a couple this week. This one from Nick. I didn't want Buck to be the manager understood that they needed someone with experience and stability. I'm optimistic about the start of the season, but with the idea of Buck never winning a World Series, should Met fans lower expectations. Um, listen, Buck has been a tremendous program builder. He rebuilt the Yankees along with Stick Michael. He built, obviously, uh, franchises from scratch. He has obviously taken a bunch of teams to the postseason and he has not won at all winning at all. As we've all learned in the postseason is a little bit of luck of the draw. You got to get your team hot at the right time. It's not always the best team that wins. It's a team that gets hot at the right time. Look at the Braves last year. No one thought the Braves were the best team. They clearly weren't the best team, but it's the team that gets hot at the right time and clicks at the right time. That's the team that wins it. And you know what? We'll see if the Mets can be that team this year. They'll, they'll clearly be a postseason team. Looks like we're going to have two postseason teams in New York. Uh, I think we expected that from the beginning. Yankees are off much better than anybody could have ever hoped for. Um, but, again, it's being in the right place, right time, and having your team healthy, having your pitching aligned and healthy. Then you can get some timely hitting, and that's how you win a title. Um, this from Mike. The Mets just unveiled their Tom Seaver statue. Well, the Yankees don't really need statues to celebrate their players. If they had one to put a statue celebrating one player, uh, who do you think it should be? Well, listen. I think you say the best. The Yankees don't need statues. The Yankees have had uh, a handful of the greatest players of all time and have had countless great players. But there's only one Bay Ruth. No matter how big you want to make DiMaggio, Mantle, or Gehrig, and I think those three, along with Ruth, stand alone. Uh, they stand among the top 20, 25 players in the history of baseball. Uh, they stand uh, uh uh, uh, separate from all the other Yankee greats, but Ruth is Ruth. Ruth saved baseball. He was baseball. Um, there's never going to be a figure anywhere near as big as Babe Ruth. So if there had to be only one, there would be Ruth. Uh, Mike from Ridgewood, uh, Villanova grad. Devastated to see Jay Wright go. He should be. I know you had a good relationship with him. I have a very close relationship with him. That is true. Uh, if you wondering if you think he'll find satisfaction away from coaching, uh, or TV, or what do you think he'll do, or will he be back? I think it's the same as it always is. 
when you're great at something, when you found your life's calling, when you had great success at the thing that you were meant to do in life, you try to stay away. You try to find other interests. If you don't find it, you come back. I think Jay will be the same. Uh, but I'll tell you, what's going to make it very difficult is there's no question that forget college. I don't think Jay will coach college again. I think the new rules and the new protocols in college play away from what Jay does. I mentioned that to him. If you remember the podcast, um, Jay wants to develop players. The game is played away from that with, with what's going on with these protocols and with these recruiting protocols. Uh, it's, it plays away from developing and having teams that are based over three or four year development. But I don't think there's any question Jay is going to be an extremely hot property for the NBA. Uh, it will be very hard for him. Very, very hard, I think, for him to continue at a young age and healthy and vibrant. And Jay is that every bit of that. I think it'll be very hard for him to resist the NBA for long. I would be surprised if he doesn't coach in the NBA. Adam from Brooklyn, should the Mets trade someone like Dom Smith for some bullpen help? I don't think they have to. Um, you know, the Mets did the right thing getting rid of Cano for this reason. Some teams wouldn't have done it when they owed a player almost $40 million. The Mets sent a message, and they've sent it on numerous occasions, at least three times, that money is not an issue. You know money's not an issue. You have the richest owner in baseball. He's made it clear he wants to win at any cost. And him making the right move, regardless of dollars, shows you again that he is going to time and time again do what is necessary to win. And they can add. They will be in a position down the stretch of this season to add the bat that they need and I think they will need a veteran bat because they can do it at a cost. They can do it and bring in a high salary. And you will see them bring somebody else's closer in who somebody is trading because they can't pay him and they're looking to get some prospects. They will bring some, and you've seen teams do this on numerous occasions in pennant races, bring somebody else's closer in and blend them into your bullpen for the for the pennant chase and for the run for the whole thing. And I think the Mets will do the same thing this year. I think you will see them bring in somebody else's closer, no matter what it costs. And I think what you're seeing from the Mets and what the Cano message sends is that, hey, the Mets will do what is right and what makes sense for the team, regardless of the price. And... Very few, if any other teams, very few will be in that position. The Mets are clearly in that position, and that should put a very, very big smile on your face with a very good nucleus. And remember, the Mets starting pitching has been sensational. Scherz is off to a start you could only dream about. And if they can just get DeGrom healthy for the second half of the year where he doesn't have to worry about anything, except taking the ball and throwing in the second half of the year. And he's got a lot of innings in that arm then and can go strong through the postseason. They could be unbeatable with 
DeGrom at the top of his game, Scherzer at the top of his game. And what you've seen so far is you've seen DeGrom, you've seen, I mean, you've seen Scherzer, you've seen Verlander, you've seen Kershaw, all pitching at a very high level in this early season. Matter of fact, a lot of pitchers pitching at a very high level. Uh, I counted 28 pitchers the other day who had whips under one. That's a lot. It really is. But the Mets have the ability to go get what they need, and that is a great position to be in. And uh, they have an ability right now to add the biggest piece anybody could add, which would be a healthy DeGrom. Thanks for the questions. Again, Mike Francis, a podcast at gmail.com, and we'll answer them each week. When we come back, Bobby Bell. Want to email the Mike Francesa podcast? Drop Mike a note at podcast at gmail.com. We're joined by Bobby Valentine, part of the uh, Bet Rivers baseball contingent as we move into the month of May. And uh, everybody in New York, Bobby, has big smiles on their face. Obviously, the Mets off to that very fast start. Now joined by the Yankees, who have uh, decided to knock off 10 straight here in the early part of the season. Yeah, what a run by the Yankees, and uh, the Mets do look really good. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we might sell a Subway Series tickets right now. These are two <laughs> two of the best teams in baseball, and uh, wouldn't it be great to see that happen again? Well, you know, the teams that everyone expected, that a lot was expected from the Yanks, a, lot, a little less from the Mets because of the Grom injury. Uh, the Dodgers, a lot expected. They're right there. The Brewers, a lot expected. They're right there. The one team that hasn't held up their part of the bargain so far has been the Chicago White Sox, who have been uh, very, very sluggish. They uh, have been very erratic and right now find themselves 9-13 and 13 in the early season. Yeah, they're a team that could get hot, Mike. Uh, I, they just got through playing the Angels four games and had two shutouts in those games. But as you said, played very sluggishly. Uh, it doesn't look like it's a great team effort right now. But, uh, you know, Tony LaRus is over there, and uh, he knows how to get a team together. And this team has an abundance of talent. So um, don't count them out. It's really early. Bobby, you know, we talked about the Giants who last year didn't look like anything on paper and won 107 games. Uh, you see them. I saw them play in New York uh, for uh, early in the season on brutal weather. But what you know about them is you see about them is they know how to play the game. They have a lot of parts that fit, even though they're not big stars. They got a lot of role players. They have very good pitching. They have everything seems to fit. It's a team that uh, probably knows its roles about as well as anybody in baseball. Yeah, and their you know their entire concept is a team concept, and uh, it's really refreshing to see uh, what they're doing there and how they're doing it. You know, doing it with a good young manager and about fourteen coaches that travel with that team who all have specific players that they work with and it might be a new paradigm i think we talked about it before about more coaches uh having guys being taken care of on a on a daily basis so that they're prepared properly they feel like they're part of the team and they contribute when they're asked you know uh interestingly some of the re- you know we, everyone awaits the ground coming back the news has been good but they still he's not even going to get another MRI for two and a half more weeks so again he's going to miss the first half of the season hope to have him strong for the second half they said they saw healing so that's a positive 
But Scherzer off really well. Verlander off really well. Off really well. Kershaw off really well. Older star pitchers off very well in this season. Yeah, the guys are a little um, length under tooth. They're really showing that they know how to prepare for a season, whether it's a shortened spring training or not. As you say, the veterans are are leading the way right now. And, um, you know, the question for them, because they have all the ones that you just mentioned, have pitched more than some of the younger guys, is if they can sustain that level throughout the entire season. Um, I'm sure there's planned... Uh, days that uh, they'll be skipped or they'll miss, they'll miss a start here and there just to make sure that the recovery process is proper. But, um, you know, to see Kershaw pitching the way he, he has been the last, uh, last month is, is really refreshing because uh, he's a Hall of Famer. He's a, he was the top of the league for um, a seven years, six, seven years in a row. He had a little downturn. People thought the injuries would uh, curtail his uh, his excellence, and now he's back in the saddle again. You know, 30 pitches, Bobby, I added up last night with whips under one. 30 different guys, an incredible number. Yeah, you know, they, got, they took away the sticky stuff, but uh, for me, it seems like they've expanded the strike zone. The, the umpiring has been... Uh, less than desirable, and I think most often has favored the pitcher, um, and um, the the pitchers have become more creative. You know, they're everyone now throws their breaking ball when they're behind in the count. Everyone now has a fastball that moves both ways, and um, to prepare for for a major league pitcher today, uh, you have to really have a a great scouting report, a great system. You know, Mike, they, they have different systems now where where guys just look for balls coming down a certain lane and knowing that the ball could move at the end, either uh, away or in or, or up and down, really doesn't matter. They just pick out a certain lane, negate the other lanes in their view, and then um, swing at those pitches in the lane. And, and the pitchers know about this process. And I think they, they are confusing a lot of hitters and a lot of really good hitters seem to be confused on fastballs early on. A new name, Logan Gilbert off to a phenomenal start for the, for the Mariners, big kid, six, six, uh, former first round pick out of Stetson, a guy who's off to a very fast start. Yeah. A, a pitcher's college where they develop, uh, they, they develop, major leaguers as well as minor leaguers and, and D one players. And, uh, you know, he knows what he's doing at it from a different angle. When you have that, that leverage, uh, coming, uh, from that high on, on the mound, it's a little different look and his stuff is just electric. He, he needs to be the guy to, to carry that team. You know, that team's been, uh, sitting on the sidelines for over two decades now, missing the playoffs. And uh, they say this is the year for the Mariners. And and a young guy is going to be asked to do an awful lot uh, in the middle of that diamond for the Mariners. What do you see with Tyler McGill, which is what, 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 what do you see that's surprising that's making him so successful, Bobby? Well, watching him last year, I was very impressed, uh, you know, with, with his off-speed command. 
uh, with his fastball command. Uh, once again, throwing any pitch in any count. But, um, you know, it's it's an age-old thing. When you can work both sides of the plate with your fastball and get ahead in the count and have an arsenal that um, is it can put hitters away, uh, you could be successful. And, and McGill is, is a very capable uh, pitcher with the command that he's shown most of last year and so far this year. Command mainly of the fastball and in uh, in that uh, changeup that he throws. But um, you know, com- command rules right now because uh, the mistakes of the pitches that are getting hit. I don't think the hitters have quite hit their stride yet. Um, you know, uh, with, with the shortened spring training, recognizing pitches, um, you know, playing a lot of day games, um, getting in a in in the cadence of having off days that that many of these players have, you know, in in a routine manner. Um, guys like Mike Trout have uh, days off, um, you know, that are scheduled. So. Uh, you'll see Aaron Judge uh, hit a couple home runs and then not play the next day. You'll 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 see that uh, the the star of the team um, is not in the lineup, uh, and that's mainly to make sure that they are in their best condition uh, every time they go out on the field. You mentioned Trout; he looks like the old Trout. Well, Mike Trout, um, you know, I, I'm on the West Coast uh, working with the Angels doing. Uh, TV work with them and um, watching them play on a daily basis. And he is uh, more spectacular in person uh, than, than he is on television. Uh, his ability to hit balls uh, in, in all section sections of the strike zone at all speeds, uh, extremely hard uh, to all fields is remarkable. And uh, he can run like the wind. Um, he's, he, you know, he's bigger than, than most people think he is. Uh, when you stand, when I stand next to him, not being a big guy at all, I feel like, uh, um, one, one of the, uh, three stooges, uh, just standing, <laughs> uh, you know, standing next to him at, at four feet tall. But, um, you know, he, he has that, that ability to time, uh, any pitch that's thrown, uh, hit all strikes in all zones. A little weaker on the fastball up than he is on all the pitches down, but um, he co- he's covered some 98 mile hour fastballs, you know, letter high and and hit him extremely hard. Uh, I I suggest watching him if anyone ever has the chance because he's he's a generational player. Oh, well, really an incredible talent. Uh, a remarkable play. Just wondered if he was going to come back as strong. He has. He's come back unbelievably strong. We're talking with Bobby Valentine. You know, one of the things for the Yankees in this, they've played close games. They've gotten really picked up well out of the pen. They've gotten some timely hitting. Judges gotten hot in the last week. But a couple of guys really have exploded out of that pen. King. Holmes, especially King this year, but Holmes too, really have been sensational out of the pen for the Yankees. Yeah, and I mentioned Chapman in our talks earlier, and he's only had a handful, maybe four opportunities, I think, to save games. Hasn't given up a run yet, but of course, you know, he is the stabilizer. But, you know, 
The Yankees have won 10 in a row. I think they're a really good team. What we all know, you never could judge a team when they're hot or when they're cold. And uh, eventually the Yankees will have a cold spell. And um, hopefully that won't be at the wrong time. It'll be at the right time when everyone else is having cold spells too. But um, they, they look, they look like they're ready to um, play in a subway series. How about a guy like King coming out, you know, and exploding out of the pen like him? 22 strikeouts in 14 innings and, and just really, they've put him in a couple of spots this year where he came in one game with the bases loaded and struck out the side. I mean, he has really been impressive so far. Well, one for sure, Aaron Boone uh, trusts him and, and believes that he's made of the right stuff. And, you know, pitching in those situations makes his entire uh, team believe that and uh, striking out guys at the pace that he's striking out it's making the opposition understand that he's the real deal um, you know explosive um, uh, fastball and, and breaking balls things that um, you know are, are hard to time the third time through never uh, Never easy to time the first time through. And I'll tell you, Bobby, if if uh, I mentioned Holmes and you look around the league, if the Pirates kept half the guys who have become stars on other teams out of their pitching staffs in recent years, I mean, they, w- they wouldn't be in the predicament they're in. They have let guys go all over the league and become big stars. I don't get some of these giveaway teams that uh, are just uh, developing talent for other teams. It reminds me of the old Kansas City. Uh, hey, uh, Kansas City, Kansas City A's, yeah, in the right. old days, yes, yeah. Right, yeah. the old days, yeah. The Yankees farm team. Everybody came through. <laughs> you know, I used to think, when I was a kid, I used to think everybody came through Kansas City on their way to the Yankees. I mean, it seemed like every guy came from Kansas City. <laughs> I promise I thought the same thing. Um but there are, you know, there, there are giveaway teams. I mean, Cincinnati has given away some uh, incredible talent, you know. And, and, and then you have teams like uh, Tampa Bay that, you know, has, has let talent go uh, that was mature and good. And then they have talent to replace it. That, that's the miss, missing link with Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, and with Cincinnati, that when, when the good players leave, they don't have the – the good young players to replace them like uh, Tampa Bay does, you know, and maybe Miami. Now that Miami's looking good early in the season too. I think that the, the start is over Everyone says, well, you know, you know, he's off to a good start. The team's off to a good start. Now that we're into May, the start is over. Everybody's either had a good or bad or a mediocre start. They they're figuring out what their team is now that they've reduced the roster uh, by a couple that uh, they're they're understanding their personnel and and other teams' personnel, and I think within about a month, um, this both leagues will shake out pretty pretty reasonably. So you'll know who has to make moves, and you'll know who who has to stay healthy. You know, uh, Miami's got good pitching. We know that they got good live arms on that team. They really do. They if you, if you see them for a weekend, you're gonna get you're gonna come up against some guys who can really throw. That's one thing you know. I mean, they don't have that much offense. They let all those outfielders go a couple of years ago, but they definitely have guys who can throw. The team that perplexes perplexes me is the Phillies. The Phillies to me just always look listless. They have so much talent in that lineup. And listen, we know Joe Girardi's a good manager. We watched them forever. But the team, that lineup just doesn't seem to click. Yeah, I've only watched them a couple times uh, thus far, and, and it was on really bad days when, uh, 
you know, they weren't picking it up well. They weren't, uh, you know, putting it in play well, swinging early in the count, never, never working counts deep. Um, yeah, they, they really do seem to be uh, something other than a championship team. They do, and you know you got a lot of you got a couple of good power lefties there. You got Harper, you got Schwarber who can hit home runs with anybody. You got guys from the right side who are big slugging guys. You got a big catcher in Real Muto. I mean, they should have a. I don't know what it is with that team. Something's just, something's not right right now. And maybe they'll put it all together, but something's just not clicking with that team right now. Yeah, you know they blamed it on Harper not having MVP seasons, and last year he had the MVP season. They still didn't uh, get to where they need to be. Um, uh, but it, and the bullpen looks a little better this year than it was last year. It was a disaster. But uh, again, I, I agree totally with you. It doesn't seem like a team effort. No, it, and it didn't seem like a lot of life out. I don't know what I just don't. I, you know, I just don't see that. I just don't get a, a a good when I watch them. I and we've seen them. You know, against the Mets, I just don't. I don't get a good feeling about that team. I don't know why. It just something's missing. I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, what doesn't fit, but it, something is not clicking there. That's for sure. Uh, and you know, right now when you look at it, there's a there's a lot of teams that are playing pretty solidly, you know, because San Diego's playing pretty well. The Giants are playing pretty well. Colorado's played very well. The Dodgers played as well as you expected. So they've all done well. I mean, uh, in that they're going to beat on the teams in the Central, especially the Pirates and, and, and Cincinnati. Cincinnati has just been horrific. And that's hard to see from a baseball standpoint. When you think of the Reds, you never think of the Reds as being just a god awful team, and right now they're a pretty bad baseball team. Yeah, both both teams, um, you know, were against the CBA. Both both teams um, decided to give away their players, and you know, attitude filters down from the top. And uh, I think the the winning attitude is something that uh, has not filtered down there for years in both Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. And, and we know in, in the seventies, those were two organizations that um, were, were at the top of the class. And um, you know, there, there's been a lot of space between them being on the top and them being where they are now. I tell you, Toronto, the Yanks are playing Toronto right now. We're talking with Bobby Valentine. Toronto is just a good baseball team. And you talk about talent in that lineup. Boy, they, they, they have scary talent on that team. Yeah, I think when you look around, they, they might have the, uh, well, I don't want to say the, say the most talent because uh, they're very talented teams, but their young talent uh, is really fun to watch. Uh, they, they love the center stage. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, all of their players, uh, you know, feed off of uh, Vladdy and, 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 and feed off of, um, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're Bichette that, uh, you know, just love to go up there and, and swing the bat and do something special, uh, both on offense and on defense. And, and Spring, um, Spring is another one. Spring is a good baseball uh, player. You know, Spring is a really good baseball player. Well, Springer uh, is the best baseball player ever out of Connecticut, hands down. And I say that because I'm from Connecticut and I watch him uh, consistently. And, uh, you know, both both sides of the ball, he can he can uh, play the game of baseball and play it at a very high level. You mentioned the umpiring. Uh, 
a couple of things. They've let these games get away embarrassingly. Uh, the Mets have been hit so many times this year. Now you want to say they can't get a grip on the baseball. It's cold or whatever. Also, last night I actually saw the umpire apologize to the pitcher and say, you know what, I blew it. I blew it. It's my, my fault. I, and actually say I messed up in, in the calls he made in, in an inning, which cost them. I mean, you mentioned the umpiring. And also this idea of just not controlling the game from a standpoint of guys getting hit. The Mets have been hit 20-something times already this year. Yeah, um, it seems the Mets have been hit more than – well, they have been hit the most of anyone in, in baseball. But uh, I, I just don't like the, the feel of what's going on with the umpiring. You know, the, I, the idea that it's, it's okay, you know, to – to miss pitches and then just say, Hey, so I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, and I get, I know they're all human and I know there's a, you know, the human element people talk about and they actually like it. I despise it, especially behind the plate. I think that, uh, if you can't get that right, then uh, the essence of the game of baseball is, um, being compromised. It's, uh, we teach kids from the time they're, they're swinging the bat the first time to, to swing at strikes and, and take balls. And we teach pitchers from the time they're first on the rubber to uh, get pit, pit people out with strikes. And all of a sudden you see three, two counts and a ball three inches outside bases loaded guys called out. That's, that's the game. I mean, you change the entire game when that happens and it, it shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? You cannot, I don't care whether they file lawsuits or whatever, okay? I mean, and I'm, I, 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 mean I, I don't mind even singling them out. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Angel Hernandez is an awful umpire. I mean, he can complain about anything he wants. He can complain about bias. He can complain whatever he wants. The bottom line is every fan who watches the games knows the guy's a terrible umpire. That's all there is to it. <laughs> well, he sure has had some spotlight on him, and it seems like he tries real hard. Um it, it's just, you know, you, you, you gotta be better at your profession than some of these guys are. And, uh, if there's an alternative, um, I think that alternative has to be put in place uh, sooner rather than later. You know, it's amazing when you, uh, when we saw Cano released, Cano was the only guy who had, uh, anywhere near close to 3000 hits. And we know he's not going to get 3000 because he doesn't have 2,500. He doesn't have 250 hits left in him. We know that. Okay. And um, the Mets with a lot of money on the table, still got rid of him uh, because they needed to keep Dominic Smith, which makes sense. Um, But it's amazing. The milestone numbers, which have been such a part of our baseball lives, 20 wins, 300 wins, um, 3,000 hits, 500 homers are going to go by the boards because of the fact that guys just are not going to play the requisite number of games anymore and pitchers aren't going to pitch the requisite number of innings or get the requisite number of starts anymore to put together those kind of numbers anymore. Yeah, I I feel um, that that's going to be something that will be missed, the idea of uh, records and streaks and, and – uh, being compared with uh, generations that have that have gone by, uh, but I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. I think that's just the way it's going to be, and uh, I think we have to uh, do the things with our game uh, 
to make it more attractive. And and I think it has to be more than just velocity off the bat and and launch angle and and uh, you know velocity that's being thrown. I think there's a memo out there, Mike. I think I might have said this before for for teams to um, steal more, to bunt more, no to question. play baseball more. No uh, question. Er- Everyone's doing it. It's everybody. I've a, seen more stolen bases this year than I saw all last year. It's not. I saw more hit and runs already this year than I saw all last year. I I have too, and I enjoy it, and uh, I think it's good. Um, but I, I just hope it's being done for the right reasons. You're out there uh, doing games with the Angels. The Angels are an interesting club for a lot of reasons, including having two of the you know most special talents there are in baseball, uh, and they obviously have some other players who can be complementary both on the mound and you know in the everyday lineup. But the Angels have had a hard time, and uh, you know when a Syndergaard if he stays healthy, as an example, will help. There's no question. Uh, you know we know Syndergaard's got talent. Um, yeah, obviously a town, you got trout, you got the guys like that. What about the angels? Are you convinced now that they are over the hump as far as being a legitimate team this year? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it takes at least until now to know what you have. And then it takes another month to figure out what everybody else has. And, um, you know, this team doesn't have great depth, but they have very good talent. They have enough of talent with a guy, uh, Taylor Ward, who's uh, in the outfield hitting over 350, and he's a re- he's a legitimate hitter. Uh, uh, he's he's good enough that he's leading off, and the lineup now has Trout and Otani. Uh, you know, more conventional three, four and right. two, three type of hitters in the lineup. Um, you know, Iglesias is in the in the bullpen at the end of the game is that guy that you need at the end of the game. Um, the, the pieces that they have all seem to fit. You know, Rendon is back healthy this year at third base to give a another clog. And and they have a really good mix of young players who are talented and don't have the resume, but are building one very quickly along with the established players who, um, you know, who are there healthy and wanting to do something special. I think the, I think the angels who are in first place now um, are going to be around all season long. Bobby, how do you feel? We're talking with Bobby Valentine as we do each week as on the baseball portion of the podcast. Now, Bobby, um, there's no pitches hitting. So the idea uh, of the discussion that we went through for the last couple of years of batting your slugger two or batting them three, um, there should be no debate now uh, one way or the other. What makes sense? And if you're going to bat him two now with a lineup that does not have a pitcher in it, then why wouldn't you just bat him first? Well, the reason I guess you don't bat him first and, you know, Otani was leading off for quite a while and he might go back to that if Joe Madden decides that. But, you know, the, the one thing you're sure about if you're leading off um, uh, in, in batting first in a lineup is that every game you play, and that's probably going to be 155 for Otani, that's 155 at-bats that you're going to have that no one will be on base. You're absolutely sure 
that there'll be 155 right, at and best. I, I, and I don't no like that. Base, and and right? I don't like, I like having table setters. I believe in table setters. I'm more conventional. I'm going to bat my guys one, two, three. I'm going to bat Atani or Trout three and Atani four or vice versa, depending on how I want to do it, who I want to protect at the, at the moment. Or I probably, I'm going to probably bat Trout three and Atani four myself. But I want, I want, I want fast table setters in front of them. I want a guy who can score from first on a single. I want a guy batting second who can take a walk and can steal a base. I want those guys in front of my power guys so that they do hit three-run homers. That's how I'm going to play it. You agree, or are you going to go with this idea? I still see guys batting their slugger, too. Well, first and second, you know, because the the thought is if a guy's going to hit 50 home runs and get up 500 times, um, that's a home run, uh, you know, every, uh, yeah, every, every so many at-bats, right? So, you know, he, he's going to be able to get, those at bats extra if he's batting first or second, you know, he'll get another 50 at bats and in 50 at bats, he's going to hit five home runs. Well, let's take the five home runs more that we wouldn't get if he was batting later in the lineup. And I, and I get that, but uh, you know, I, I like a lineup that, that, you know, looks like what I and what you think a lineup should look like. Well, I would think on a season, Bobby, the average guy, one versus two, cannot be that much different if they were everyday players. They would probably both see the almost the same exact number of at bats, right? Most, I mean, there'd be some days where the first guy would bat five times and the second guy would bat four, but that would be rare that it'd just be one at bat. I would think they'd come very close, don't you, on the season? I remember when Bobby Richardson batted second for the Yankees and had 692 at bats. So um, the bottom line is he wasn't batting leadoff. It's probably pretty close for the uh, when you go for uh, the whole season. Uh, it's close, but you you do get up more. And I I think first and fourth there might be as many as fifty at bats. You additional. think so? Fit first and fourth, fifty at bats, and they're both going to get a lot of walks anyway if they're sluggers. So we know that. Uh, but uh, so are you? Can you still understand batting guys second, or are you be, would you be against it? Uh, I I've seen it work, so I have to go with it. I don't think that I I'd favor it in my lineup. In if you where would you bat? I could Trout? imagine Mike Piazza batting second. Let me put it that way. Mike. Agreed. Now, wouldn't you? Where would you bat Mike Trout as an example? Oh, I think Piazza was the third place hitter uh, in my lineup most all the time, or the fourth place hitter, and I think that's where he's hit best. And, and is that? And would you put Trout in the in the three hole, or would you put him in the four hole? Oh, I see Trout in the three hole, and uh, he's. He's gone off there. You know, the team won like six out of seven games with him there. I know it's a small sample, and he's hit about 400. But, uh, you know, it it, it it looks good. Let me just put it that way. It just looks and feels good. Yeah, I agree. I would bat my best hit a third. I just That's just the way, especially now where you don't have a pitcher in the lineup. So, I mean, it's a, it's a whole different thing. Your nine-hitter now at least can – can handle a bat and can get on base too. So, I mean, it, it shouldn't make that much difference, but Hey, again, you know, it's, it's this whole idea of, uh, of, of the changes that baseball has come up with that. You still see it 
I mean, teams are still batting their slug a second, so it's still it's still happening. Um, anything else uh, on your mind this week? Anything else surprise you that you've seen? I'm not surprised, but I'm I'm happily um, enjoying the game of baseball. I think that you know the games are quicker. I think that uh, for the most part, I think there's a lot of action going on. I think the uh, stars are staying healthy, which is very important for our game. And um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of surprises out there, as there is every year. So it looks like this could be a very good baseball season. Thanks, Bobby. We'll chat next week. Thanks, Mike. All right. Have fun. Bobby Valentine uh, with us each week with the baseball portion of the podcast. When we come back, we'll do some football, some post-draft, some NFL with uh, Bet Rivers football, one of their football guys, uh, Mark Schler. You're listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Part of the Bet Rivers team is Mark Schlereth, obviously the decorated Super Bowl champion who had a stellar NFL career, and you see him on TV all the time. And plus, he's going to have a, a new podcast, Man 101, on the Bet Rivers Network. That's going to be coming up soon. So, Mark, first, welcome. Tell me about Man 101. Yeah, well, you know, you can find that on uh, Bet Rivers' YouTube channel, my YouTube channel. But really, okay. it's something I've been doing for for years, Mike. It's uh, I'm a landscaping aficionado. So, oh, really? Uh, my two, I have two skills in life. I, I you know, I, I play football and I can talk about it. Right. And I spend a ridiculous amount of time landscaping and doing stuff in my yard. And so it's just really about uh, kind of doing it yourself uh, projects that uh, I am always kind of involved in. So. I'm going to rebuild the deck this year. Uh, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff this year. I've built some uh, vegetable gardens in my yard, some other things, but they're just funny and, you know, really come from a perspective of uh, I'm not going to read the directions. I'm just going to go out and do the work and we'll see how it ends up. So are you a big fun. lawn guy? Do you do your yeah. own lawn? Do you cut? Do you oh, I, yeah. do, do, you do everything do, I, from start to finish with your lawn? Yeah, I'll do every, I'll do everything. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, irrigate you know i'll fix my irrigation system i'll do you name it i'll do the landscaping part and i'm talking about big three 400 pound boulders i'm moving around and putting wow. them in place uh, yeah I, I just is like i would rather spend five hours in my yard than than five hours on a golf course any day of the week so um this is kind of one of my my project things and uh they're funny and they're fun and they're uh you know they're they're uh they're like I, like i said i always uh I always kind of use the JP uh, JC Penney's theory, which was uh, JC Penney was actually, you know, the guy who who started JC Penney said the uh, the best teacher in life is the job itself. So uh, I'm one of those go out there, get the work done, and see uh, and and see how it looks at the end. So well, there's a lot of people who like fooling around in their yard, but they don't know what the hell they're doing. I mean, they continue to mess it up. You know, a lot of people get frustrated by their lawns. They have a lot. I mean, I, I I have a lot of lawn, and I wouldn't know what to do with it. They have this guy who comes and treats it every year and puts some stuff down that you can't go on it for a couple of days. And then the regular mm. landscaper takes over after this guy treats it. So I don't know how they do it, but it comes out looking pretty good. I don't, I, you know, they do a good job. So I wouldn't well, know what the heck good. to do with it, to be honest with you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Well, I just love being outside. So anyhow, that's my, it's one of my, uh, that's my, that, that's my vice, if you will, Mike. All right, well, listen, you know what? You could have a lot worse, that's for sure. That's a good one to have. Yeah. And uh, being outdoors is, 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 a, is a great way to spend a couple of hours. And uh, here's the thing. 
what drives me crazy, Mark, is to watch people after the draft sit there and put these ridiculous grades on the draft, say A, B, C, D. No one knows. I mean, we're not going to know mm-hmm. for a couple of years whether these guys can play. So what I like to do is this. Take guys who follow this every day like you and, and are former players who do it like you do and say, now that we're through the process, now that we've gone through free agency, now that we've gone through the draft and we've had the trades, there are some teams everyone can point to, the ones that went out and got quarterbacks. But what teams out there do you like? And obviously you got the big three with Denver, Cleveland, Indy with the quarterbacks. But what teams do you think have really going through all the different ways they had players have put themselves in a nice position for this football season? Yeah, I th- you know, it's always it's always interesting because you got a couple at all. Right. I mean, this time of the year is the uh, I always say the the phases of football and. You know, you talk about the regular season. So you've got the preseason, the regular season, right? Then the offseason, the player kind of procurement stage of the season. And then you've got, you know, then you've got the draft season, if you will. And then, you know, you roll into the summer, um, OTAs and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, you, you love, you love with certain teams. I mean, obviously, anytime, and you mentioned it with the Denver Broncos getting the quarterback and Russell Wilson changes um, everything, changes everything. yeah, it, there's no, there's no question about it. You go from a also rant, but I think one of the things that's really interesting to me, Mike, is you know I've said this about the Broncos for the last, and I live in Denver, and I've said this about the Broncos for the last four or five years, is you know they think they're working hard, they think they're preparing, they think they're putting in effort, they think they're studying, and they really don't know what that requires. And then a guy like Russell Wilson walks in the door. And his preparation, the way he goes about it, he walks in the facility at 5 a.m. every morning. So I'm talking to Russell Wilson, uh, it was two years ago, before the 2020 season. And I always want to pick people's brains about how to prepare, right? Because I'm a a freak when it comes to preparing, whether it was I was playing or broadcasting games on Fox. I I just can't get enough of the preparation aspect of it. So I asked Russell about his preparation. He goes, well, you know, like for a road game, for instance, in this road game, and it was Seattle. I was doing the opening game of the 2020 season, Seattle at Atlanta. And he goes, I'll get on the plane and I'll watch the game twice. I'll watch it just from the broadcast standpoint and listen to it. And then he goes, and then I'll watch the coaches tape and see where I could have improved, what I should have done differently. Then I put that to bed. And he goes, then I start studying. I start breaking down. Hey, what is this next team we're playing? What are they on first and 10? What are they in, you know, in base situations? First and 10, second down and five minus. What are they in nickel? What are their dog packages versus their blitz packages? What do they like to do? So he starts prepping on Monday and Tuesday. And here's a guy that sleeps four hours a night. So all he's doing is studying. Then by the time they walk in Wednesday, every guy, um, before before they get in on Wednesday, it has a 15-page dossier of Russell's work on what the uh, next opponent looks like. And the coaches get it. Everybody gets it. So he puts this all together. And I think when you come from a, um, a losing culture, a team that hasn't performed very well, you think, like I said, you think you're working hard. You think your preparation is up to snuff. And all of a sudden, Russell walks in the door, and you realize, oh, my God, I'm, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. So I think that's a team I look at that, that really, just through the quarterback in and of itself, is going to make a bunch of players 
better. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, going out and getting Devontae Adams for the Raiders, I mean, this division is just absolutely And it's loaded, loaded with quarterbacks, too, I mean, which is unbelievable. Right. I mean, you know, you, All, ha- you had one in Kansas City, and everybody's chasing, and Kansas City really helped themselves with what they added. I understand they lose Tyreek Hill, which is a hard guy to lose, but they went out, and they, they actually were impressive in the draft because they went and got some very interesting players. They really did. It really, you know, what's really interesting about the Tyreek Hill thing, and I know this is kind of off off basis, but or off topic, but what's interesting about the Tyreek Tyreek Hill thing is what NFL teams want, what they want to do from a from like who they want to pay, like you know, they used to be the 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 safety that was you know like the hard nosed run support guy, and everybody wanted that guy, and now it's two essentially free safeties that you can rotate, you can you know you can. You can roll either one of them into the box, so you don't, uh, you know, you don't give away coverage, you don't give away your eight-man fronts and those type of things. But what really is interesting is teams no longer like nobody has fullbacks. There's only a handful of teams that have fullbacks anymore, right? Like real true fullbacks. And it's interesting to me just watching this thing kind of progress as I travel around the league and talk to teams and talk to coaches and talk to general managers every week. Is nobody wants to play the slot receiver. They want to pay, you know, the the uh, Devontae Adams type of guy, you know, the X receiver that lines yep. up on the weak side of the formation. It's a big threat that you got to roll coverage to. You got to find a way to double team that guy. That's the guy they want to pay. Um, and you know, nobody wants to play pay the slot receiver, even if the slot receiver is is incredibly productive. So the big time players making twenty million dollars a year, the slot receiver or twenty plus million dollars a year, the slot receiver is making eight to nine. And, and the other thing that I find interesting is nobody wants to play, pay the nickel corner or the, the nickel player, even though that player is kind of one of the toughest jobs on the football field because he's got to cover the slot guy who's quick as a hiccup, who's got inside and outside breaks. You don't have a sideline to use as an extra defender. You're not getting help. Um, and so you, you've got to be able to cover that guy man-to-man. You've got to be able to play zone. And, oh, by the way, you've got to be like a linebacker. You've got to understand run fits and, and your run recognition and your run reads but nobody wants to pay that guy. Even though every time I talk to a coaching staff every week, they say, Hey, the first thing we look at is who's their nickel defender. Because if we can attack that guy, great. If that guy takes that part of the field away, then we have to throw it outside and our completion percentage drops and everything else. But you know, I'm talking to Logan Ryan last year and he goes, Hey, listen, man, I moved from nickel corner to safety. And when the giants signed me, he goes, I don't want to play nickel corner. And they said, why nickel corners don't make money. Safeties make money in this league. Unbelievable. And I just, I, yeah, I find it really interesting, just kind of the the mindset of of football and the way we kind of operate as as you know as uh, as the NFL and and how different positions become valuable and some lose their value over time. We talk with Mark Schlereth again. He has uh, the podcast uh, for the Bet Rivers folks uh, on the Bet Rivers Network for uh, Man One Hundred and One on YouTube and everywhere else now. Denver has Wilson. Cleveland has Watson. Let's say he's out of trouble and he plays from day one. Uh, they'll figure out what to do with Baker Mayfield. Well, they just put him on a bench. Uh, Indy has got Matt Ryan, which I think has gone under the, you know, kind of yeah. has not gotten the attention, obviously, of the other guys. But Matt Ryan, I think, is going to fit very, very well uh, with that team. Which one do you think has the biggest impact right away for their team of those three very prominent quarterbacks? 
Well, I, I, I think that Russell comes in to Denver and has uh, a great impact, even though it's a really tough division, because I think he's got, you know, they've got Javante Williams. They just signed, re-signed Melvin Gordon. They've got the receivers. I love, um, I love the Matt Ryan deal to Indianapolis. I think you, he's going to have a great year there. I agree. I do too. And I think they automatically, I know Tennessee is Tennessee. And he's is, got a know, great back division. and he's got a good offensive line. He's got a great right. back. I mean, they have a, and, and a good smart coach. Uh, they, they're smart offensively. I think that's going to be a great fit. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, they went out and got a receiver in, in the Pierce kid, I think from Cincinnati, they've got Pittman. Um, and I'm with you with Quentin Nelson, their offensive line, they're just physical. They have got Jonathan Taylor is a tremendous back. I just think that that's a football team that um, should win that division. And one thing about Matt Ryan, and, I, and it's interesting, you know, I've, I've got a relationship. Obviously, I played for Mike Shanahan, so yep. I've got a relationship. Um, you know, I've got a relationship with Kyle Shanahan, a really strong relationship with Kyle and, and some of the assistant coaches. And I was talking to, to Matt Ryan before I did one of his Atlanta games, just about kind of um, some things some assistant coaches have, taught, have told me along the way. And Matt Ryan, and, and this probably goes under the radar, people don't know this, but Matt Ryan kind of in the league is considered kind of the godfather of shotgun footwork. And, and you know how every route in the West Coast offense, every route times up to your footwork. Like your three-step drop, your five-step drop, your five-step drop with a hitch, your seven-step drop. And so the routes time up. So as soon as you break out of a route, that ball is going to be on you because it times with your footwork. And if your footwork's impeccable, they always say in the West Coast offense, you throw the ball with your feet. So and meaning when you hit your spot, man, that ball's got to be out. If that receiver's on time, he's at the right depth and he's doing everything correctly – there's there is no defense for it. You can't cover it. And so what ended up happening is everybody kind of morphed into the shotgun, which essentially took a lot of that footwork away from under center. So when Kyle Shanahan and Matt Ryan were working together in Atlanta, they developed all the footwork and the timing of the footwork. So, hey, I'm in shotgun, but it's a three step drop. Like Matt will like, hey, you may see three of the tiniest steps you've ever seen, but it gets me in the right rhythm to throw the ball on time. And what I tell my receivers is, hey, I'm going to be on time, so you damn well better be on time. You're going to get your ass chewed. And I just I find stuff like that fascinating about this league. So, you know, Matt Ryan will walk into Indianapolis, and he'll bring a level of professionalism and a level of attention to detail, much like we talked about with Russell, that they probably haven't seen before at the receiving in the receiving room. That they probably haven't seen before in the passing game. And, you know, they can't help but, I think, be better and actually win that division. And, you know, the amazing thing is, and he took the hit and partially should, but if their coaches just aren't brain dead and he wins a Super Bowl that he never should have lost, I mean, just go back to the mm -hmm. play calling, which was absurd. He then has a Super Bowl victory in a, in a big way against New England. He's got 60,000 yards passing, 360, you know, uh, touchdown passes. His career has looked at completely differently if he had won that Super Bowl. It changes everything for him. And he would have been treated completely differently through these years. There, there's no question about it. I think he's an elite-level player. I agree. And, uh, I, think he's been, I think he's been great. And, yeah, I mean, that was one of those – that's one of those things like – 
hey, man, as an offensive coordinator and, and Kyle Shanahan, guilty, you know, you should have run the ball. You oh, please. The, the plays. But that's your head coach's responsibility. You know, that I put it on Dan Quinn, and Dan Quinn's a good friend. That like, was a, really a big, friend, that but, was the biggest meltdown I ever saw a team have in my life. I mean, we can talk about yeah. what Pete Carroll did on the goal line. That made no sense because when, 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 when Julio Jones got the first down, Bill Belichick threw his play thing. He knew the game was over. He knew it was right. over when they got the first down. If they just ran the ball from there and kicked the field goal, the game's over. Yeah, you're a hundred percent. You're a hundred percent right, and that's where you know that's where when you have to manage a game and manage it well. And and it's it, it's interesting, isn't it? Like you see all these coaches that don't want to give up play calling responsibilities. And, you know, I saw it here with Vic Fangio for a couple of years. He's calling that defense. Well, I mean, there are so many mistakes. Even Andy Reid still gets criticized all the time for game management mistakes because you're so busy and enthralled in not only working what plays you want to call, but what plays you want to call in the next you know quarter or three plays from now. I'm setting up this play. And I think you lose track of, of your ability to manage the game. And it's really, you know, really interesting. Like Cliff Kingsbury – their special teams coach over there really manages the game for Cliff Kingsbury. He's like, man, I take that off my plate because I can't handle it. And our special teams coach is the guy who, who does all that stuff for me. So, you know, it, it's just interesting. You've got to kind of know your strengths and know your weaknesses. And I'll give, you know, I'll give Cliff a lot of credit um, because he just turns, he just turns it over to Jeff Rogers, their special teams coach. who goes, you do the, the game management for me. You've been in this league forever manage the game, let me know when I should, when I should, you know, timeouts, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just helped me along with that process. Mark, as a guy who won and won a lot, uh, you see these teams, you can see them here in New York, dying mm-hmm. to build a good offensive line, trying. I mean, Gettleman tried from the day he got here to figure out how to build that offensive line. He could not get it built. I already made a mistake with the left tackle. Okay, he was he shouldn't have been brought in here. He was done. But the bottom line is he he just he never could get it right. You see this all the time where these places can't get it right. From your standpoint and your experience, what is the key to getting it right when you don't have an offensive line? What's the key to building it? And getting, the, do you need one great player to build around? Do you need one anchor to build around? Do you, can you do it all with versatile guys who are just tough? What is the key to getting an offensive line built? Well, interestingly enough, Mike, it, it's funny. So I, I've had, especially over the last several years, um, I've consulted, you know, for a bunch of teams and, um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, I'm, I'm consulting for a team last year and most of them, you know, want to be efficient zone running football teams, right? So they right. want the nuance of the zone game. And, and just because, you know, I travel around the league and I talk to a lot of coaches and all that kind of stuff, I, you know, and, and because I came from, you know, the Mike Shanahan tree and Absolutely. I played in that tree and, and that tree is having a ton of success right now. It sure is. League, and it's a very sophisticated right? running game. It really is. Right. Yes. People want to pick your brain on it. So I've had this opportunity and, you know, I'm talking to a coach, uh, a head coach who hired me uh, last year. And he said, Hey, listen, man, just really want to run the ball. And I said, do you? And he goes, yeah, I really want to run the ball better. I go, but do you want to run the ball better? He goes, yeah, I want to run the ball better. I go, but do you really want to run the ball better? 
And I'm like, it's not like it's like you can't take a pill. It's not like, you know, everybody wants to everybody wants to lose weight. Right. But they just want a pill to lose. weight. That's not how it works. Right. You've got to put in the work. You've got to commit to it. You've got to understand what your identity is. And then you've got to look at a two yard gain and look at the positives of it. As, as opposed to getting discouraged because you're in second down and eight, man, we just beat the living piss out of those guys. And five guys are getting up off the turf right now, licking their wounds. Man, this is going to pay off down the road, right? And you've got to have that level of commitment. I go, here's, and I told this coach, I go, here's what I hate about you. And he goes, oh gosh, this should be good. And I go, this is what I hate. You'll run the ball three times in a row and you'll get two yards of carry. You'll throw your hands up and go, screw it, we can't run but you'll throw seven incompletions in a row, and not think twice about it. And so, like having good offensive line play, Mike, is truly about having good coaching. And it's not, I'm not talking about coaching technique, which is important, and coaching scheme, which is important. It's really about the philosophy of what you're trying to do. So, for instance, I mean, you've got you've got the toughest position in all of football, the most skilled position in all of football, offensive line. And you know, people laugh about that, but I'm saying. Show me one other sport, Mike, and you've covered them all for, you know, for decades. You've covered them all. Show me one other sport that, unlike athletes, are matched up. Yeah, you're about the same height and the same weight, but the guys on the defensive side of the ball run four. You know, they're guys, pass rushers run at four, five, forties, right? So, athletically, you're overmatched. You're the worst athlete on a football field as an offensive lineman. The worst athlete. So, every time you line up, you're lined up against a guy that's exponentially more athletic than you. And yet, if you don't win 100% of the battles, you suck and he goes to the Pro Bowl. So from a skill standpoint, show me one other sport where unlike athletes are matched up and the guy who's the worst worst athlete is supposed to win it 100% of the time. It it doesn't happen. You don't get caught. You don't get caught in a switch. Nikola Jokic doesn't get caught in a switch, you know, with with Steph Curry. And Steph Curry blows by him like he's a, a, a traffic pylon and takes it to the rack and scores, you know, scores two points. Nobody says, hey, Nikola Jokic can't play defense. He sucks. That's right. No, you say, hey, man, they got us on a switch, that's you it. know? But but that's offensive line play. So for me, it really comes down to the way your coach operates. How can I take pressure off of these guys? How can I allow them to eat? How can I allow them to have success? It really comes down to coaching more than anything else. And so I always look at it like this. Hey, if you're going to throw it on average, 35 times a game, Mike, you've got to take, you've got to take that pressure down those 35 attempts and you've got to take the pressure off your offensive line to where you got to hold up on 12 to 13 of those attempts. So, Hey, for instance, Hey man, of these 35 attempts, five of them are going to be three-step drops where you guys can attack the line of scrimmage. Great. Okay. That's easy. I, even if I miss, we're still getting the ball out. So I've won. I'm five for five right there. Now I'm going to take another five of those reps, right? And I'm going to make those five-step uh, five step drops, but they're five-step drops. The ball's out instantly. So like anytime you throw an all-go, that's a, that's a ball that's out in five steps, but as soon as you hit the fifth step, it's gone. It's, so now I can treat that like a three-step drop. So now I've taken 10 tough plays off of my plate. Those are easy, right? I'm going to win 10 out of 10 on that. So now all of a sudden you say, hey, man, we're going to run, you know, we're going to run some seven-step drops, but we're going to do it all out of play action, uh, off the deep play action stuff. So we're going to have six, seven-man protections. You know, we're going to – everybody's going to get a double team. 
Uh, one side's going to have the tight end stay in. The other side's going to have the back t- stay in. And so we're going to get double teams across the board. We're going to do that five times. So now I've taken 15 reps off of you that I can win easily. Oh, wait, I'm not done yet. Now we're going to have run action plays, right? Where we're running, boot keeping out the backside. Easy. That's a win. I take five of those. Now all of a sudden I've taken 35 plays and I've whittled down to 15 plays that you have to win. Well, so now, now I can win those 15 plays, right? Because now I can change my sets. I can show you something uh, and do something like I have a game plan now. But if you drop back and just throw it 35 times a game without a game plan, without taking pressure off your offensive line, you're going to get your ass kicked. There, there's not one offensive line in the National Football League that can handle that. So those are the things that you have to understand from a coaching standpoint of how I take pressure off of those guys. I don't care. You can be, you can be the best player in the world. If you line up and you have, you know, a, a five-step drops with a couple of hitches and a bunch of seven-step drops and you throw it 40 times a game, you're going to give up. You're give, it's the, the Bengals. Like, it's amazing what Joe Burrow was able to do with the Bengals getting sacked seven to nine times a game. It's it's remarkable. like nothing I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, right. he, well, he had one remarkable. receiver they couldn't cover. That was the biggest thing for him. You know, he, it was a, right. A, yeah, because he he got hit a million times every game. Yeah, absolutely. It really, so that, but how about the idea? How that, but how about the idea, Mark, of the of now? So little time goes into even with the lack of pl- uh, practice time that teams have now during the week, even in training camp. I mean, so little time dedicated. To the, I mean, I remember when you'd go to practice, the old two-a-days, you'd have 90 minutes of running game in the morning. Now you never see that. Now you never even see them work on running game in, in, in training camp. You don't have that anymore. So the practice time, and now with so little limitation during the week, it seems to me you don't spend a lot of time anymore practicing the stuff that you need to practice to be good at that used to be the way teams practiced and got good at, at, at run blocking and having running game. That stuff's gone by the boards now. It's, it's, they don't even practice that hardly anymore. Uh, yeah, and that's where, that's where the nuance and the understanding and having an identity even become more important. Oh, you, you remember when training camp was two, was, you had two a days and you, you oh, know, yeah. and it was hot and you had, and you know, you'd have to have intravenous and, you know, you know, back I mean, you might've been a little lighter. You might not even have needed intravenous, but the bottom line is, you know, how, how it is and how crazy it was and how hard you guys worked that those, you, you don't even see that in, in training camp anymore. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And it's, and it, again, it goes back to, one of the reasons guys like me get hired is like, hey, what's the nuance of, of this play? The other thing that you get into, Mike, is like um, the, the teams that really understand, like they build off of, of like one or two principles, right? So they say, hey, this is our identity. We want to be good, you know, at wide and tight zone, for instance, right? And that's what we're going to hang our hats on. And so some of that is cut back run and some of that is the front side. And some of, like, But th- these are the two concepts that we're going to be really good at. And then, you know, we will add, we'll, we'll throw some adjunct plays in there based upon what a team struggles with. But, when they tell but you they want to do what the Niners do, what do you tell them? Yeah, yeah well, you, you, Good better, luck. you better commit to it, right? You better, right. Like, I, I probably talked to 12 teams last year. They're all studying Niners tape. Of course, and I'm because like, everybody luck. wants right. to run the ball like the Niners right. and block like the Niners. Right, but they, you have to understand and you've got to have that commitment, that identity and everything else. One of the things that happens with teams, and I find it fascinating, is teams 
will basically take, okay, give me all the runs over the last five weeks that this, this opponent that we're playing struggled with, right? So you'll say, hey, give me all their, for instance, give me all their six-yard-plus runs, six-yard-plus kind of runs. And and it'll collate and give you all the six-yard runs over the last four weeks, you know? And and so you'll look at them and go, okay, they, they gave up this on wide zone. They gave up something on counter. They gave up something on power. And then, then teams in today's game, because they don't have an identity, because like you said, they don't have time to work on it. They think they don't have time to work on it. Um, so then they then they start game planning and they say, okay, well, today we're going to run some wide zone, but we're also going to run the counter game. We're also going to run the power game, but we got to get this trap in because, you know, they gave up two big runs on the trap. So we want that in our system. And you know what happens? You're a jack of all and a master of none because none of your guys know the nuance. Your coaches don't know the nuance of the play. They don't, they don't understand it. And so all the little pitfalls that will happen to you over the course of a football game, uh, you know, are going to happen to you. You're going to take a bad step. You're going to have a your bad timing on the play because you don't really understand how it works because it's, you don't have that identity. And there are so many teams that are, I mean, the coaching, there's a lot of poor coaching in, in the national football league. It, there just is because everybody wants to copy everybody else and nobody wants to just put their flag in the ground. It's one of the things I respect so much about the Baltimore Ravens. They're just like, Hey, I don't give a rip what you're doing. We're going to do what we do, and um, and we're going to be damn successful at it. And I have just a lot of respect for John Harbaugh and and what he's accomplished over there with uh, you know, with Lamar Jackson and how they kind of turned the NFL on its head with their their system and their style. How hard when you look at it is would you want toughness? Would you want versatility? Uh, you know, I I always heard when. When I heard from coaches that I believed in, they always told me that the thing I want most in an offensive lineman is flexibility. But I think versatility is enormous. When you got a guy who can play two and three positions, especially with the amount of injuries and missed games we have now, to me, I think that that's an enormous factor on some of these lines, the guys who can, who can do that, who can play both guard and tackle, who can move around and can, and can do it at a moment's notice, I mean, without having the whole line collapse. Yeah, I want, I want toughness and intelligence, and, and intelligence becomes versatility, right? When you have a guy that really understands the game, really understands the nuance of the game, um, really understands where the issues are based on the defensive alignment and, and what could possibly happen to you, like to be able to play multiple positions, you got to be smart. Um, to be able to flip flop around, you got to be able to be smart. You got to be able to trans, you know, transpose all the schematics in your head, and and you got to be able to, you know, to to understand all the like all the issues that come with that particular position. So, you know, I want, I want, for me, I want toughness. I want guys who are tough as nails. Um, and then I want guys who are intelligent and you can win a lot of football games with, with toughness and intelligence. And, you know, it goes back to kind of a new England Patriot philosophy of, um, you know, Bill Belichick, which are more games are lost than one. And his whole deal is, man, I want really smart players that don't put themselves in harm's way. And at the end of the day, you're going to make more mistakes than us. And that's how we're going to beat you. And you know what? I believe, I believe in that philosophy because it works. Yeah. And all those years they had a guy on that offensive line as a coach who could have been a head coach, could have been any kind of coach he wanted to be, and probably was one of the best coaches in the entire league at any position. 
mm-hmm. you know, and he never yeah. got any attention. I mean, no one ever paid any yeah. attention to him. And you, and you and guys in the league like you know how good he was. Right, Skarnacki was. Yep. Skarnacki is a brilliant coach. Line. I mean, he could have been any. He could have been a head yeah. coach if he wanted. He could have been anything. What a great coach he was. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting about that is I played for uh, really arguably three Hall of Fame offensive line coaches. He, I'll go back to my college coach and Dan Cazetto right. at the University of Idaho, who coached all over the place. But uh, you know, I, I played for uh, Joe Bugle. Yeah, um, should be a Hall of Fame offensive line Agreed. coach. I played for Jim Hannafin. Same thing, and I, I played for uh, I played for Alex Gibbs, who was and, probably the most controversial of any of the offensive line coaches. Oh yeah, yeah. But, but there's two types of players that played for Alex Gibbs. He's either the best coach you ever played for in your entire life, or he's the worst coach you ever played for <laughs> in your entire life. And, you, or, you or, either, or, or, or people will tell you the opponent's the dirtiest, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I will tell you this, man. He had you prepared. And he he opened the game up another level for me from an understanding standpoint. Um, the way we coach, I mean, we coached, you know, like safety rotations and and positions where players are, you know, a couple yards out of position. Corners, like reading corners and reading coverages, and it, like we looked at, we took it all in as we walked up the line of scrimmage. And what it did for you, um, especially for a guy like me who had so many injury issues, is that you could play the game from the neck up and, you know, you could avoid pitfalls just by your understanding of the game and seeing what was going on in front of you and kind of understanding how that defense was going to unfold. And, um, and it really gave you a leg up and he was just a stickler for intelligence and, um, you know, intelligence and toughness, that's that's what he coached. We're talking about Mark Slareth, of course, uh, who has the Man One, uh, One-on-One podcast for Bet Rivers Network. You can get it on YouTube and everywhere else where podcasts can be found. And, you know, uh, you mentioned patience because for a head coach who wants to have a good running game, you got to – you know what – doesn't produce in the first quarter or maybe produces a yard or two is going to start to pay off big time in the fourth quarter. And you have to be patient with that. A lot of coaches aren't patient that way. They really aren't. And, and with a good running game, you're going to get paid off in the second half or in the fourth quarter of the game. Yeah. Well, coaches aren't patient because why? I mean, you want to become a head coach. What do you do? You, you coach on the offensive side of the ball. You're a coordinator on the offensive side of the ball and you develop a quarterback and you throw the ball all over the place and you're going to get an opportunity yep. to be a head coach. Like get that, yep. that to me, right. That to me is like Viagra for 80 year old owners. You know, if you throw the ball all over the place and you develop a young quarterback, we got to have that guy. Um, it's just not as sexy to run the ball. Um, but I, I tell you what it does for you uh, overall, what it does, you know, the, the complementary nature of football, what running the ball and being able to control line of scrimmage, what that does, one, if you practice it all the time, guess what your defense becomes? They become tougher. They become harder. They become more physical, right? So that's that's part of the ancillary benefit of being able to do that. And the complementary nature, man, if we control the time, we control the clock, keep the, keep the, the defense off the field, absolutely. The defense stays fresh. Our quarterback yep. stays upright. He doesn't get beat up, you know, and, uh, and on all our play action stuff, we set up play action. We flag the ball out there. The defense can't help but bite on it. And now we've created, you know, we've created through what we're doing, we've created, you know, five or 10 explosive passing plays 
that become easy. It, be, it becomes simple. And, um, you know, easy for me to sit here and say it, uh, I think hard for a lot of teams to actually uh, adhere to it and buy into it. Isn't it amazing, though, Mark, how much a Russell Wilson, even a Matt Ryan, uh, and, and Sean Watson's younger, so I'll leave him aside mm-hmm. for a second, but how much a Russell Wilson as a perfect example, who's been to Super Bowls, who's been a winner everywhere he's been and been a leader everywhere he's been, just how much he changes the mood and the culture before he even walks in the door. I mean, to every sure. guy, every veteran guy who's there now believes he's got a chance to win. Yeah, it's it's amazing what guys like that uh, are able to do. And, and, you know, we've seen it here in Denver firsthand when Peyton Manning walked through the door. Yep. I mean, it was a new sheriff in town. And um, and that culture changed overnight. Uh, it's just incredible. And, and, you know, Russell's done the same thing. He's energized this city. He's energized that football team. He's energized those players, that organization. And, um, and, and I'll tell you what, it's, it's absolutely amazing. The other thing to me that's amazing, Mike, is, you know, is how the league has changed from the standpoint of how much actual power the players now have. And how they're dictating in every their sport. futures, in and every how they're sport. saying, "Ah, no, yeah. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go here, or I'm, I'm just going to." You know, there's so much money in the game right now that in my day you couldn't sit out, you couldn't afford to sit out a season because you, you were done financially. Now, guys, you're just like, "Hey, man, I'm not, I'm not showing up unless you trade me," and I've already made, you know, I've already made thirty million dollars or whatever. I'm good. Um, it's amazing how much more power. Uh, the players um, wield in, in today's game than they did in, in my time. When you see these offensive linemen step in in the first round and so much is expected of them, how long does it take them, no matter how physically talented they are, you know, whether they're as good uh, as a, as a Zach Martin or, or they're going to be the next mm-hmm. Jonathan Ogden or whoever they're going to be, uh, you know, do you still need X amount of games before you figure it out on the offensive line, or can you get it done quicker than that? Well, I think it's I think it's any position, Mike. I think that you know you saw what Jamar Chase did for the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, the guy was from day one. The guy was freaking phenomenal. Um, you see it. You, you know, you see some guys take longer to develop. You see some guys jump on the scene and and are lights out from the from you know the game one from their rookie year uh really to me it comes down to you know your football intelligence how much football acumen you have um that's really that's really what makes the difference um your ability it's not your ability to run fast you know, there's a lot of guys that run you know sub four four forties they're four three but they put pads on they get in the game and they're always running four seven five you know, in shorts and a t-shirt, they're four three. In full pads, they're four seven five because they're not quite sure. They don't see the game well. And the thing to me that that really sets you apart is your ability to take information in. You know, through your eyes, see what's going on, and instantly react. Your ability to react and your reaction time um, is a God-given talent, just like your speed in the forty. You know, there are some guys that don't run 40s well in shorts and a T-shirt, um, and they're 4'6 flat. But you know what? They're 4'6 they're flat all the time. And so they don't, they don't ever slow down. They see the game well, they react well, and they just go make plays. And that's really, to me, that's the difference between 
you know, good and great and great and, and Hall of Fame is your ability to read it, see it, react to it, and and be right. And that's what makes a great player. So we see guys all the time that can run fast. I mean, heck, you know, John Ross got drafted by Cincinnati, played with the Giants last year. That guy can run fast. I think he's got 62 catches in a five-year career. Uh, you know, he's averaging 12 catches a year. He ran the fastest 40 time in the history of the combine. Yeah, I'll give you another, for instance, you know, the, we're, now the draft season is over. You know, the last, and this fascinates me, if the 40 time or the shuttle test or the vertical jump or the bench press test is such an indicator of how good a football player you are, why is the combine the last time you'll do any of those tests? Like, if yeah. it was such an indicator, why don't you run 40s all the time? Why are you doing the the eye test or the shuttle test? Or why aren't you doing the bench press? The last time I ran a 40 was, you know, in my in my pro workouts, in my before I got drafted. It was the last time I ran a 40. I never ran a 40 again. I never did another 225 bench test. I did it right before my, pe- my pre-draft workouts. I never did it again, ever. So because those tests are so only to separate the guys. It's the only the to separate the guys who and put it on athleticism. It makes yep. no sense to me. Well, I think those tests are only to make sure they don't bring someone in who has no shot. Once you prove you belong and that you're a pro and that you can play on that level, it's not what's important anymore. Then it's about your production. Then it's about your right. your video. It's your, about well, your it, film. The, the, it, it's the about your history. Testing to me is yep. checking boxes. Yep. Right, it's like, hey, he ran the forty. He did this. He did this. He did this. Hey, if it's hey, the the onus is off me now as a scout or an evaluator. Yep. Here you go. If you guys can't turn this guy into a player, that's your fault because look at like all his numbers are there. And you know, I, I just it's there's so much more to it than that. Um, and anyhow, it just is. You know, it's just one man's two opinions. But I I I think a lot of people, a lot of a lot of uh, organizations get duped by athleticism and and i say this all the time football is easy for football players it is a pain in the ass for athletes it's not easy for athletes right no good point very good first and foremost i totally agree listen uh pleasure talk to you we'll do it again thanks very much enjoy uh enjoy the yard work and uh, this time of year we'll talk soon thank you anytime mike take care thank you mark schlereth uh, the uh, Super Bowl winning offensive lineman. You see him on TV all the time. And again, uh, Man 101 on the Bet Rivers Network. We're back. You're listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Now, remember, uh, this week, Kentucky Derby comes your way Saturday. And I know uh, all the folks who are fans of uh, the stuff I do want to know when Brad Thomas is coming on to discuss the Derby uh, through the years. We have given you some uh, crazy, crazy picks uh, and some very successful uh, Derby predictions. Uh, Brad will be with me. We will do that. We will tape it. I would say late Wednesday. Uh, We will have it up for you on Thursday We'll have the Oaks and the Derby predictions in there, and we will make a full analysis of this year's Derby. The only hard part for me is that our high Oak is not in the Derby. We had hoped he would be. Uh, It's very tough because of that fall with the Fountain of Youth. We've been very, very uh, cautious with him, and we're going to wait and try to attack the second half of this year starting in uh, July at Belmont, and then, of course, 
the Jim Dandy and the Travis uh, and take it from that standpoint and see what we can do. Uh, it's tough. You know, I, my dreams to been in the Derby. This horse was, was good enough to do that. He was talented enough to be in the Derby, but you got to also be very lucky. And the fall we took in the Fountain of Youth has just slowed us up. That's all, you know. So, but we will be there with Brad this week, ready to analyze the race. You have an interesting race. And, you know, everyone said, well, Baffitt won't be there. Hey, folks, Baffitt's there. His name's not on the horses, but there's two horses there that are clearly Baffert horses, and they are going to be major factors. One especially going to be a major factor in the race, but that will come your way later this week, so look for it. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Hey, it's Mike Miss here. What a time to be a Philly sports fan, and you can share the excitement with me each week on the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Listen and subscribe to the Mike Missinelli Podcast today, wherever you get your podcasts.